At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, an update on data standards, key to making artificial intelligence work, and the role of responsible AI. But first, joining us today is John Cofrancesco of Fortress Information Security uh, to talk to us a little bit about the threat from uh, Russia as this war enters its first month. John, thanks so very much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me back. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. John, uh, thanks very much uh, again for joining us. You know, we've, we've been expecting... Uh, Vladimir Putin to uh, launch a cyber uh, assault against the United States. Obviously, he's subject to crushing sanctions. Uh, His war uh, is not going as well as I think he wanted the war to go, right? Apparently, he expected the whole thing to be wrapped up in 12 days, not uh, to end up becoming a a, a grinding quagmire um, that is chewing up more of his forces in, in dead and wounded. Where, where are we on, on, on their attacks uh, on us, right? We've had shields up now, for more than a month. Um, what's the latest intelligence telling us about what to expect and when to expect it? Because obviously, Putin has the aggressor's advantage, right? He's the one who can choose whenever he's going to act. Well, the first thing to understand is that the initial attacks have already happened. Uh, we saw that uh, every single manufacturing plant in Japan for the Toyota company went down. A uh, number of other DOD and defense-focused companies in the Western world have either been attacked uh, or are currently defending from attacks. So that's going on. But to but to be crystal clear, we haven't felt the brunt of it yet. So far, they've been um, pretty pretty uh, held back in terms of what they can do versus what they have done. But recent news out of uh, out of the leadership, the Biden administration is indicating to us that's that's going to change here shortly. Um, and, and obviously, um, the administration uh, has told everybody shields up, right? I mean, those, uh, that guidance is, is, is out. Um, what, what's the kind of assault we expect? Because one advantage we've had now for the past six or so weeks, John, is, right, everybody is working on improving their defenses, right? I mean, you guys have been working basically 24-7. Almost everybody's been to safeguard themselves. So what is it that we're expecting and are we in better shape today than we were, say, six weeks ago or two months ago? We are definitely in better shape than we were six weeks ago. And kudos to the industry. The folks who really need to be acting are acting. You know, I'm in contact with CISOs and leadership from across industries, and the story is consistent. CISA, Jen Easterly, and the rest of the crew have been physically calling these leaders, telling them to get on it. And those leaders at the big businesses across the country have been responding. So this is a sea change to how things would have been done just a few years ago. So that is sort of the good news story here. The the concerning story coming out of this is what Russia might do next. So in this initial bluff of attacks, they have been primarily economic and they've been relatively light. 
Uh, our defenses have been pretty pretty robust against them. The next round of this attack could be more focused on critical infrastructure. That's what all the intelligence is saying. And if that happens, then we, we really could experience some of those darker outcomes, people losing power, uh, you know, people losing water. That type of thing is definitely in bounds here. Uh, that would be an escalation. But, but that's what the intelligence is, is telling us to be prepared for. And then certainly that's what we're concerned about. Um, are, are you surprised at the, are you still surprised um, at the lightness of the response from the Russians? No, I'm not, because I, I think that they're striking a balance between keeping us out of, uh, and when I say us, I mean sort of the, the greater NATO alliance, out of engaging further. Uh, but also letting that letting us know that hey we have the ability to strike you that so this is what's what's going on in the physical world is being reflected in the cyber world uh, one for one and and I think President Zelensky of Ukraine said hey this is the first time that we've had this this hybrid warfare and I think he's right we are experiencing a hybrid so in the same respect we'll see Russian attack planes fly right on the border uh, up to Poland in Ukraine but not across it we're seeing the same thing in cyber so some light attacks but primarily economic. I think if the physical situation changes, right, planes from NATO start showing up in Ukraine, troops show up from NATO in Ukraine, I think we will see a similar cyber change uh, quickly. Uh, that's a very interesting situation, definitely uh, the, the, perhaps uh, the first of its kind in history. Um, one of the questions uh, that we had, and you and I have talked about this, right, is um, by having everybody sort of shields up, right, the defenders on full alert, that can be exhausting, right? And an, an attacker can take advantage of that. And this was a, uh, a question that actually Chris Cervello, our producer, uh, asked, which I think was a very good uh, question. Um, first, do the shields ever come back down, right? I mean, do we need to stay in a permanent shield up position? And B, can we do that without exhausting everybody? Because um, you know, I, I know you well enough to know that you guys really have been working overtime throughout this period uh, because people really, really need you okay, well, if we have these threats that are extant and they could spring it on us at any time with potentially debilitating results, everybody does have to stay shields up. I mean, can we stay shields up? Do they ever go down? And how do you manage to do that when you have a finite amount of people who are getting tired manning those shields? Well, Vago, I think you and Chris bring up a great point. Uh, the reality is, is that the, the what is baseline has now changed. So we go shields up, which great marketing effort on the part of CISA. We go shields up because we're having to raise the defenses, right? But you know that necessarily implies that uh, you have sort of less defenses at other times. What's really happening here is that this entire bar, so that base level, is now being elevated. And there will still be shields up, but that will be at a, at a sort of more ascendant level of cybersecurity. And I think what, what we're seeing across various industries is some of the companies who you know always talked a good game on cyber but really considered it an afterthought are now moving that right up the priority list and we're hearing this out of analysts in the banking segment uh, every day basically that you know the CEOs the CFOs who really have control over what goes on in the company are saying well this was a concern now it's a primary concern and I think that is here to stay um, is um, you're obviously in the threat intelligence uh, business. Um, you guys, you know, identify vulnerabilities in software uh, and hardware. Do you think the bad guys are going to morph as a result of what they're learning from our defenses? Right. I mean, this is very much a thrust and parry universe. 
Well, absolutely. We should not underestimate the capability of our opponents to create new and more dangerous uh, attack vectors. I mean, these are smart folks. I mean, growing up, you watch cartoons, right? Boris and Natasha on Rocky and Bullwinkle. They, they weren't that smart, which means that Rocky and Bullwinkle always won. But in real life, Vladimir Putin and his crew, these they're evil, but they're really intelligent. And we, we should be prepared for the fact that as we up our game, they're going to up theirs. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you about um, uh, priorities. Um, do the priorities change or are the priorities the same priorities today that we had, say, three weeks ago or six weeks ago? On a tactical level, the priorities are largely the same, right? You know, make sure things are patched, make sure you're doing the basics. But what has changed is sort of the strategic priority list, right? But so whereas a company might have said yesteryear, well, I can invest a million dollars into physical security or I can invest a million dollars in the cyber. Nine times a 10, that was going to physical. Today, nine times a 10, that's going to cyber. And really, that has changed in the last six, seven weeks. John, the whole world uh, is waiting to see whether or not Xi Jinping comes to Vladimir Putin's rescue. There's a sense that he will, uh, that she is as vested in uh, Putin's victory as Putin is uh, ultimately, right? He needs Putin to stay in power. He also needs to deliver a defeat to uh, the West, uh, to the United States that's trying to do this extraordinary campaign to punish Russia. Um, Are we seeing any increased threat activity from the Chinese at this point? And more importantly, are we in a position to be able to sustain an attack, not just from Russians, but also augmented by Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, you name it, right? I mean, there's this sense that if there's going to be a war, it might not be a nuclear, I mean, there are concerns about a nuclear exchange, but actually that there could be an even more intense outbreak of cyber warfare, even though I think everybody acknowledges the work that the National Security Agency, Cyber Command, right, GCHQ, all of our friends are really defending forward in unprecedented fashion. But can we hold off? You know, what's the latest threat warning? And do can we can we do this with these guys working together against us in cyberspace? You know, the the reality here is if the West wins in this context and Putin finds himself with the same borders he had previous to this invasion, China wins. China wins because the West has now spent a bunch of money on defensive equipment that may not be relevant in the Asia Pacific region. They have won because they have cornered Russia into being more dependent on China. And they have won because they have done a good job of separating Russia from Europe. If Russia wins in this current context and they are able to take over Ukraine, then the West will have to put more resources into Europe rather than the Asia Pacific. They'll have to reveal more of what we're going to do in terms of cyber, thus giving away the game. So China is the ultimate winner no matter what in this context. They, They have artfully, masterfully played this. That so no matter the outcome they're winning, short of a nuclear war, anything short of that, China has won. And frankly, in context of Taiwan and in cybersecurity, officials have been adamant that they have seen a spike. China has absolutely been doing both physical and cyber activities that were a little bit more aggressive. But we're not hearing the news of that here because relative to what's going on, the the, the catastrophe that Vladimir Putin has caused uh, this world in Ukraine, it's just not as big a news. But China is enjoying the situation and and they have really on a world stage pegged all sides into a corner. And very briefly, uh, John, uh, in less than 30 seconds, I mean, are we seeing any more Chinese activity and will we be able to withstand the assault of both of these guys simultaneously? It will be very very complex for us to defend uh, an assault from all sides at once. And there's no doubt that there are malcontents that are using the situation to to, uh, their advantage. But ultimately, and I have to credit 
there has really been a sea change in terms of how we address cyber in this country. Jen Easterly, the rest of that crew deserve a tremendous amount of credit. John, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. My pleasure. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And joining us now is Dr. Amanda Muller, the lead for the Responsible Artificial Initiative at Northrop Grumman Mission Systems, our sponsor. Uh, Amanda, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Vago. Uh, a real pleasure, uh, as I said. And uh, you're joining us at a very interesting uh, time uh, in uh, the space. Various parts of DOD are working um, on those common uh, data standards. Obviously, the Joint Artificial Intelligence uh, Center, the Jake. Uh, was launched several years ago to harmonize uh, these data standards, and it looks like they're making uh, progress. Uh, Congress wants to know how many AI projects the Pentagon uh, is uh, doing, uh, ultimately to be able to um, figure out where that line lies between work the government should be doing uh, and, and the private sector, and it's something that I want to get your sense on uh, in a little bit. Um, where are we in this ecosystem uh, because your ability to execute, as your motto says, right, we do what we promise, um, is only possible if actually the conditions for that success uh, exist, right? And there's a little bit of concern that we're not doing as good of a job harmonizing these standards, absent which artificial intelligence is not really possible. Where are we and how are we doing right now? Well, I think we are making tremendous progress. So as you mentioned, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the Jake, has been leading the way in the Department of Defense in this area. So back in 2018, they asked the Defense Innovation Board to propose ethical principles. They formally adopted those in uh, 2020. So progress was made there. Then in 2021, the National Security Commission on AI released their final report. And that truly highlighted an emerging consensus on principles for using AI ethically and responsibly. And then just recently in 2022, the Stanford AI Index report showed that the DOD spent more on AI last year than any other US government department or agency. And in fact, at $1.4 billion, they spent more than the rest of the top 10 government agencies combined. So they're putting a lot of resources toward the development of AI technology and the understanding of what it means to do that ethically and responsibly. And we've really started recently to see an uptick in the amount of guidance and legislation that's coming out. So we're seeing AI bills being introduced to Congress at a rapid rate. And even at the state level, we recently saw the New York City algorithmic bias in hiring law passed in January. And we, we really believe this is an indication of things to come. That law required audit and transparency for any AI system that's being used for hiring or employment decisions. So while this doesn't affect us directly at the moment because we're not our, our company is not hiring in New York City, we do see this as an indicator right. that future legislation will follow. So we're watching these types of developments very closely. So coming back to the DOD, just a few weeks ago, the Defense Innovation Unit published a report on responsible AI in practice, and it applied ethical principles to case studies. So I, I think this really demonstrates 
the potential of AI within the defense domain, and also the demonstration of how to apply these ethical principles in specific use cases. And I think that's incredibly important. I don't think there is a one size fits all approach to AI ethics. I think it very much depends on the use case in which it's being applied. And so it's exciting to see a lot of demonstration of principles in practice applied to particular use cases. And, and, and let's, um, I want to delve a little bit more into those use cases, right? Uh, last uh, year, right, I mean, the Jake uh, or DOD came out with its uh, ethical AI strategy uh, last year. Uh, last year, we also had uh, former Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work and uh, former Alphabet Chairman uh, Dr. Eric Schmidt, the co-chairs of the Defense Innovation Board, uh, also co-chaired the National uh, Security uh, Commission. Uh, on artificial intelligence, and they had their findings about sort of the uses of AI. Talk to us about the DIU, the Defense Innovation Units, uh, you know, use cases, right? What what do they span? Uh, because as you said, right, I mean, the New York City law is designed to prevent, right? I mean, if you use it in an HR function, the right candidate might always be a white male, just like if you use it in a criminal justice uh, system, even if inaccurate, it, it may you know, pick minorities, for example, for that, even if it's not the right outcome, right? So what are the right use cases from a defense perspective? Well, I, I think you're right that they kind of span a, a large gamut of potential applications. So a few that were highlighted within the DO, DIU report, the Defense Innovation Unit uh, set of, of workflows, was um, one was on predictive health for military treatment facilities. So that's very much something that's analogous to things that would be relevant in the commercial space. And we can pull a lot of best practices from the commercial world for that particular use case. But another that they recognized was countering foreign malign influence. So tracking and countering transnational criminal groups who are attempting to mask their identity and their activities. So that's a very different use case from AI for military treatment facilities or commercial uh, health treatment facilities. So we have to apply a different set of principles for how we manage AI in those particular use cases. So I think it, it spans many different potential applications. It's important to examine each application and apply the right principles to those use cases. Um, one of those use cases uh, is the Joint All Domain Command and Control uh, System, right? JADC2. It remains one of the Pentagon's top priorities. Um, I should note our JADC2 coverage is sponsored by L3 Harris, but I know that you guys are keenly pursuing uh, various important awards in, in, the, in the space, and we've talked to some of your folks. Um, I don't want to get into the mechanics of whether or not the department is doing it the right way or not, right? I mean, ultimately, there's a little bit of concern that all the services are not aboard uh, and building something from the foundation that is interconnected. Everybody's kind of going to do their own thing and then connect it. But the most important piece of this is the data piece of it, right? Why is AI and unbiased AI so important in a JADC2 context? And secondarily, are we building the right data standards so that even if these systems are developed in their own service stovepipes, that ultimately the, the data they're using will actually be fluid among them, right? That basically architecturally it works. 
Right. So I think there are two points to be made there. One is around the, the bias that you mentioned. We will never have unbiased data. There will always be bias in our data sets for various reasons. You mentioned earlier historical bias and, and how we are, are beholden to the biases of the past when we're bringing in historical data sets, but there are also potential sources of adversarially introduced bias. Um, the just the limitation and the amount of data that we can collect in various situations. So there will always be bias present. So number one, it's important we understand what those sources of bias are, what the risk of those biases are, and how we can mitigate that risk. So that's number one in, of critical importance to an application like JADC2 is understanding and mitigating the risk associated with bias. Number two is, is as you mentioned, crossing those boundaries and, and the stovepipes that that exist. So critical to the enablement of JADC2 is being able to bridge across different services, different levels of classification, different uh, sources of data. And we have the ability to do that through our systems engineering practice, through our ability to operate at the edge because it's critical within a battlefield environment that we're able to do that. And then bringing together the various technologies and practices that are being developed in industry and in government and in academia, because I think there's a lot of great work being done in, uh, in academic settings that we can bring to bear for an application like JADC2. Um, there is a concern on the part of some leading AI experts that the government is trying to do too much of this work on their own and that they simply lack the expertise uh, to do it. Um, we've seen a little bit of this in other uh, fields. Cyber is, is one area. We've seen it in training and simulation uh, where um, you know, there's a sense, hey, we can just, you know, buy Hologlass or, you know, Google Glass or whatever uh, and and execute something. And it, it's actually a little bit more complicated uh, th than that. Ultimately, what's the right approach to implementing and expanding the use of AI and doing it the right way more collaboratively uh, between government uh, or I should say among government industry and academia? I think the National Security Commission on AI said it very well. This needs to be a whole of nation approach. This isn't something that the government or industry or academia can solve on their own. We have to bring all of the expertise that's out there to bear in order to tackle some of these challenges. And I think the Jake has been doing a fantastic job of this. They have their trade wind organization that is leveraging non-traditional defense uh, contractors. Um, so, you know, companies that have never worked in defense before and have expertise in some area of AI. And then they're also leveraging larger, more traditional defense companies who have that understanding of the mission space and the ability to bring together disparate systems together to, to work towards solving some of these problems. So I, I don't think that the government is excluding anyone here. I, I think they recognize the need to operate in this whole of nation approach to, to bring together all of the expertise that exists in industry and in academia and in government. I just want to go very quickly to the question of eliminating bias, right? I mean, use cases can help us, right, avoid bad decisions, right? So for hiring uh, or uh, criminal applications, right? It's, it's, it's problematic. Whereas there are good use cases, but you still said that bias will somehow uh, exist, right? And, and we use AI now for uh, target recognition, for image analysis, right? I mean, there are a vast array of things that we use it. How 
but you said bias will always exist. How do you mitigate and minimize the negative effects of, of that bias? Number one is, is recognizing where those biases can occur. So having a good understanding of what data does exist and what the implications of any potential bias can be. So having a good governance process in place that uh, works to recognize the sources of bias and understand what the implications of those are. Another thing that we're looking at to help to mitigate bias and mitigate the risk associated with bias is synthetic data. So in situations where we know our data sets are biased in a particular way, um, such as with historical bias or with a limitation in the amount of data we're able to collect, the ability to generate synthetic data, and again, having to mitigate the bias associated with that um, to, to make sure that we're creating data sets that are representative, but do not include the biases that we know exist within the, the raw or non-synthetic data. So um, we, we can use AI technology not only to, to solve some of our use cases, but also to solve some of the problems we have with the availability and the bias inherent in data. Risk mitigation, right? I mean, as you said, is is one of your priorities in this, right? So you know you're going to have it, but how do you minimize it? Talk to us about how the company's responsible innovation ethos plays into this. Well, similar to what the National Security Commission on AI recommended with a whole of nation approach, we are very much taking a whole of company approach to, to doing some responsible innovation and responsible AI in particular. So it's not just about the technology. It's not just about the rules and regulations. It really must be an end-to-end -end integrated approach. So we stood up a responsible AI working group at Northrop Grumman, and that includes representatives from our uh, talent organization, from our chief technology office, from our chief compliance office, from business development. Um, and then we are using that working group to help us identify potential issues around the implementation of AI to establish our responsible AI policies and process and how we build AI. Because to us, how we build it is just as important, uh, if not more important than what we actually build. So we are, have been working to establish our responsible AI policies via that working group. And we are using both a bottoms up approach, beginning with a few pilot programs to implement that governance practice and those principles, and then a top-down approach with creating corporate guidelines for how we do responsible AI going forward. So bringing all of that ecosystem together is critically important to how we, we work to implement AI responsibly. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, one last question. It's about growing the, the talent pool. One of the big challenges we've had in cyber uh, is we train cyber people the way we train them. And every year we end up with a bigger gap of cyber people who need to be trained. How is it we need to think about training an AI workforce for the future? And are there ways to accelerate that training? Or is this like training a pilot or a doctor? It will take time to build the Dr. Amanda Mullers for the future. Well, I, I don't think it's going to take, say, you know, seven to 10 years to build an AI engineer when we have a large pool of talent that is starting to learn these skills as they're coming out of, of college and grad school. Um, we've worked to establish an AI engineering career path at our company, and we created AI engineer job titles for people who have been working to build these skills. So we currently have 99 AI engineers and AI engineering managers at the company. And this is a result of an effort of just a few years. So 
uh, we, we worked to establish a competency model around AI engineering to define what are the skills needed for AI engineers, and then established a training program to upskill our current employees in AI. Um, and these are systems engineers, software engineers who already have those basic skills of understanding how to code and how to do systems engineering. And then we brought them uh, up to the level of AI engineer by building those competencies uh, within our, our existing workforce. And then as we bring in new talent to the company that's coming out of school, um, we will work to build their mission knowledge so that they understand how that AI applies within the particular use cases in which we operate. Uh, Amanda, always ha- uh, a pleasure having you on the program. You're welcome back uh, anytime. Absolutely fascinating topic uh, and would love to talk again. Thanks so very much for joining us and the best of luck to you. Thanks so much, Fago. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.